Chapter 12 Special Branch Special Branch was formed in 1883 and was originally called the Special Irish Branch because it had been set up to combat the activities of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, who conducted a bombing campaign in England between 1881 and 1885, targeting iconic sites including the Tower of London and the Houses of Parliament in an attempt to force the British out of the island of Ireland. The role, remit and size of Special Branch grew over time. Eventually, it became a large intelligence-gathering organisation charged with tackling all types of national security threats, including from domestic and foreign terrorism, extreme left and right-wing threats, hostile foreign powers, and later the threat to public order from environmental groups and animal rights activists. Special Branch was a unique entity, as it had one foot squarely in the policing world and the other in the world of national security, working very closely with MI5, the UK Domestic Security Service, MI6, the UK Foreign Security Service, and GCHQ the Government Communications Intelligence Agency. However, at Special Branch, first and foremost, we were police officers, primarily accountable to the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, police regulations and the courts. Our formal name was SO12, where SO stood for Specialist Operations. There were lots of other renowned Specialist Operations departments in the Met, such as SO8, otherwise known as the Flying Squad, who dealt with armed robberies, and our sister department, SO13, the anti-terrorism branch, who arrested and built the criminal case against terrorists once we told them who they were, what they'd been doing, and where to find them. SO13 also investigated terrorist incidents that had already happened which arguably meant that SO12 and MI5 had failed to stop those attacks from happening. Whilst such obvious intelligent failures had tragic consequences due to the nature of the work, 90% of our successes never became public knowledge, simply because to do so would have exposed secret sources and sensitive intelligence-gathering techniques. On my first day at Scotland Yard, I was shown around by a charming but slightly ageing sergeant who had obviously been in the branch for about a thousand years. I remember him telling me that when he was asked by his kids and grandkids what he did at work, he told them, I keep an eye on the people who would be on the side of the enemy if we went to war. He said this with a twinkle in his eye, but over the years I find this overly simplistic explanation actually quite accurate. Ultimately, apart from the extreme right-wing Nazis that we investigated, none of these people would have been happy to stand up and sing the national anthem. Most of them worked to an agenda that was in some way about undermining democracy and the rule of law. At this time, Special Branch was divided into several squads that were responsible for different thematic issues. B Squad was charged with countering the activities of the Provisional IRA on the UK mainland, and C Squad 
was focused on domestic extremism, including extreme left-wing and right-wing activists, animal rights extremists, and environmental groups. Most of the groups and individuals that Sea Squad investigated and monitored didn't pose the same level of risk as terrorists. However, they were still dealing with individuals who were perfectly happy to commit quite serious criminal offences to further their own aims. Such individuals posed a threat to public order, as well as disruption to legitimate business. There was also E-Squad, who investigated hostile foreign intelligence agencies that wanted to spy on the UK or mount attacks on political dissidents in exile in London. Historically, E-Squad was focused on frustrating the efforts of Cold War adversaries, including the Soviet, East German and Czech security services. After the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, E-Squad started to take a greater interest in emerging threats from other parts of the world. The focus turned to Palestinian terrorist groups, as well as the growing threat from battle-hardened Islamists returning home from conflicts in Afghanistan, Chechnya, Algeria and Bosnia. A-Squad was the department that provided 24-7 armed protection for the Prime Minister and other key government personnel, as well as any foreign dignitary deemed to be at risk of terrorist attacks, such as the US ambassador or the Israeli ambassador to the UK. P-Squad monitored individuals leaving or arriving at an international port, such as Heathrow Airport or the Eurostar Terminal. These officers would stop people of interest to the security services and detain them under anti-terrorism legislation. They also had an important role to play with checking or arresting wanted criminals entering or leaving the UK and safeguarding children being unlawfully taken out of the UK. Finally, S-Squad conducted all of the surveillance activity associated with ongoing operations. Typically, this surveillance was directed at suspected terrorists or their support networks. Any part of Special Branch could task S-Squad, and their work was therefore extremely varied. I'm not going to discuss sensitive aspects of Special Branch work, primarily because I'm still bound by the Official Secrets Act, but also because this book is a more about how the police service changed during my time as an officer. There are plenty of books out there about national security policing. Some are quite good, but many are written by Walter Mitty types who briefly passed through the intelligence world before moving on or getting kicked out. I was introduced to my new team and I was ecstatic to find that I'd been posted to B-Squad, the biggest and busiest department in Special Branch. B-Squad had a fantastic reputation having more or less been on a war footing since the early 1970s and had investigated every significant Irish terrorist conspiracy over that period of time. Over 30 years until the late 1990s, the Troubles in Northern Ireland resulted in the deaths of nearly 4,000 people and caused innumerable serious injuries and enormous destruction. The majority of deaths were caused by Republican paramilitaries, including the Provisional IRA, who targeted police officers, military personnel, 
high-profile individuals and locations of perceived economic value to the British state. They were a competent, ruthless and well-organised terrorist organisation that was configured into local geographic units led by an officer commanding OC. Each geographic unit had a team of senior members responsible for defined tasks, including recruitment, training, logistics, intelligence, operations and discipline. The provisional IRA operated on a cell structure with maximised operational security by ensuring that only a small number of individuals would ever be privy to operational intelligence, or for that matter, the membership details for each cell. Pyra was well funded from overseas donations, extortion, fraud, organised crime and the smuggling of alcohol, cigarettes and diesel fuel across the Irish border. It was also well equipped and had acquired an extensive arsenal of modern weapons and explosives from sympathetic foreign powers and criminals across the Middle East, Eastern Europe, North Africa and the United States. The focus of B-Squad was to gather intelligence and evidence to facilitate the arrest of provisional IRA members covertly sent to the UK mainland to carry out assassinations and bombing campaigns. These pyro teams were referred to as Active Service Units, ASUs, and the individuals sent to the mainland were generally some of the best people the group had. In the early days of the Pyra mainland bombing campaign back in the 1970s, the calibre of terrorists sent to the UK wasn't the best. However, by the time I joined Special Branch in 1994, Pyra had become extremely experienced at operating on the mainland, and they'd learned the lessons from many years of successful and unsuccessful operations. Many of the detectives I joined had been around for a very long time and knew this murky world intimately. They talked with great authority and passion about operations from years before and about what individuals had been in the different Pyre ASUs and how they'd tackled them. The risks taken by ASU members were significant and they had it drilled into them that they faced two likely outcomes by volunteering for mainland or overseas duties. They faced either death or imprisonment, and that was the fate that awaited most of them. It was possible for ASU members to conduct mainland attacks successfully and then slip back to Ireland. However, the odds of compromise and arrest grew over time, and sooner or later most of them would make a mistake and leave a forensic trail, come to the attention of the intelligence services one way or another, or just run out of luck. We may not have agreed with what Pyra was trying to achieve, or the violent methods they used, but in Special Branch we had a lot of respect for our adversaries, as I suspect they had for us. Many years later, long-standing counter-terrorism officers all agreed that if Islamist extremists in the UK had displayed even a quarter of the logistical skills and operational tradecraft that Pyra had displayed, we would have been in a lot more trouble as a nation. Shortly after I was posted to B-Squad, a long period of negotiations between the British government and the leadership of the provisional IRA 
finally led to them announcing a cessation of military operations in August 1994. This was a bittersweet moment for many of us involved in counterterrorism. On the one hand, we were pleased that Pyra would, at least for the moment, no longer be killing and maiming innocent people. But on the other hand, our raison d'etre as special branch officers was to pit our wits against terrorists to stop attacks. It was a bit like soldiers training for combat and then being told they would not be going to war after all and would be staying at home in their barracks. Once it became clear that Pyra was semi-serious about a ceasefire, B Squad was slimmed down and many officers were redeployed to other special branch teams. Thanks to the IRA ceasefire, and to my slight bemusement, I find myself transferred to the Islamic Fundamentalist desk of E-Squad. To say that this was a steep learning curve for me was an understatement, because I knew next to nothing about Islam, or for that matter, about Islamic fundamentalism at this time. Fortunately, I'd be working with some people who knew a lot, and I, therefore, immersed myself in the subject matter, asking some really dumb questions and absorbed lots of books very quickly. It's hard to believe now, nearly 20 years after 9-11, but back in the mid-1990s, hardly anyone was interested in Islamic extremism. Our desk was one of the poor relations of the much sexier Irish Republican terrorism desks, who swanned around with their newfangled mobile phones, pagers, and unlimited overtime budgets. However, very quickly, we saw the increasing threat from fundamentalist fighters returning from foreign war zones, and how Londonistan, as the French government referred to the English capital at that time, was emerging as a safe gathering place for Islamist radicals from around the world. It was clear that these people were exploiting the British respect for civil liberties and the tradition of providing protection for political activists, whilst at the same time espousing contempt for democracy and decadent Western values. However, hindsight is a wonderful thing, and I would have taken something of an intergalactic leap to successfully predict the cataclysmic events that would play out in the years that were to come. Daily life in Special Branch was great fun. The work was fascinating, the people were knowledgeable and frequently hilarious, and the camaraderie was amazing. We got invited to some fantastic places around London, and we enjoyed being part of a much wider national security community that I never really knew about. We also worked closely with our counterparts from friendly nations across the world, and barely a week would go by without an invitation to meet someone interesting or host an overseas colleague. Fellow Special Branch officers could not have been more welcoming towards newcomers like me, and there was definitely the sense that I joined quite an exclusive club, in which we were all bound together by a strong sense of history and a need for great discretion because of the nature of what we did. It's always the people who make or break any job, and the people in Special Branch were often true characters. Many were larger-than-life personalities, with great charisma who could hold their own in any company. 
They were quite capable of chatting comfortably to homeless alcoholics one moment and government ministers the next. And this was their particular skill, which had been honed during the critical years of frontline uniform policing that everyone in Special Branch had in common. There was a definite mystique surrounding Special Branch, and this created animosity amongst some police colleagues outside the department. The people who had the biggest chips on their shoulders towards SB tended to be senior officers in other departments who at some point had tried and failed to get in. They were frequently bitter about this many years later. And they really hated the fact that there was sensitive information that could not be shared with them, no matter how much they tried to pull rank or bully junior officers. They frequently didn't understand that a typical SB report written by a junior officer was often an amalgamation of information and intelligence drawn from lots of very sensitive sources. Some of it could be from human informants, some from technical sources, some from covert surveillance deployments, and some from information supplied in confidence from other government departments. Mostly, it was a case of filling gaps in your understanding of a particular issue by going out, discreetly speaking to contacts in the community, or using your common sense and policing skills. My first two years in Special Branch were spent learning to write these reports. It was a real skill, and most of my early efforts were returned by my sergeants with schoolteacher-like red pen through entire sections that had to be rewritten. The trick was to write a report that told the reader everything they needed to know about a person or an issue in about three sides of A4. Special Branch had rigorous standards in terms of style, format and content. The reader needed to be unable to guess where information had come from to protect sensitive sources. Everything was produced on paper. Each report would be printed out and checked thoroughly by a sergeant before being submitted to the detective inspector. If they were happy with it, it was attached to a paper file relating to that person or organisation and stored in Special Branch Registry, which was a huge room filled from floor to ceiling with row upon row of files, many of which went back as far as the First World War. We gleaned our intelligence from all sorts of places, from the most mundane to the most secret and sensitive. Unlike today, we did not rely on technology, and most of the devices that would have been considered super secret in those days you could probably have bought in Curry's or Argos ten years ago. I can remember all of us gathering around a single, brand new Special Branch desktop computer with its 33K dial-up modem back in 1994. We looked on, gobsmacked, at the wonders of this new bit of kit that would produce information out of the ether like magic. There was only one person who was authorised to use it, and he guarded this privilege jealously. Ultimately, our customers were the security services, who would set the intelligence requirement, and we would go out and fulfil it. At this time, the relationship between Special Branch and MI5 was quite a tense one. MI5 had been left with relatively little to do at the end of the Cold War in 1989, and they needed to find a role 
that ensured that the Treasury didn't start looking too closely at their budget. At this time, Special Branch was responsible for all intelligence gathering relating to Irish Republican terrorism on the UK mainland. However, around this time, MI5 successfully lobbied the government to take on that task. The relationship between the two agencies had always been complicated, but this decision went down particularly badly in Scotland Yard. Relationships are thankfully a lot healthier today than they were in the 1990s. At the time, many in Special Branch felt that MI5 had a condescending and paternalistic approach to us. They would disparagingly refer to us as plod and treated us as if we were all a bunch of knuckle-dragging morons. When in reality, many of us were more educated than they were. There was a long-standing irritation in Special Branch that MI5 continually reaped the benefits of all our hard work by merely changing the letterheading on the reports that we had compiled and then to add insult to injury, frequently tried to shift the blame onto us when anything went wrong. We referred to them as the Toads and their HQ at Thames House was Toad Hall because of the way that we saw them toadying sycophantically to civil servants and government ministers. Many MI5 desk officers were barely out of university and were quite naive about how the world worked. We saw it as our job to try and educate the slow learners. This involved taking them out to the pub, telling them a few home truths and then getting them drunk. Working relationships were usually better after that. I remember one amusing incident when an enthusiastic young desk officer had asked to do a two-week attachment to Special Branch. This wasn't a common occurrence, mainly because senior officers were worried that they would run back to Thames House telling tales about those nasty, thick coppers. Although it probably had as much to do with mutual antipathy. However, during my time, there was a growing realisation on both sides that we all needed to build more bridges and play nicely. A few of us had been asked to look after this lad, take him out and about, and show him what we did and how we did it. And so it was that after about 10 days, a couple of us got called into the DCI's office, and he asked us how it was going. This particular DCI was much loved, extremely competent, and hugely respected by everyone. He was a great guy but he didn't suffer fools gladly. We told him what we'd been doing with this lad, telling him that it had gone pretty well, and we hadn't been giving him any reason to tell any tales to his superiors that would paint us particularly badly. The DCI sat listening and nodding on the other side of the desk. At the end of our account, he leaned back in his chair and said, Yes, I've had a couple of chats with him. And to be fair, apart from being a complete tosser, He's not a bad lad, is he? We both fell about laughing because we knew exactly what he meant. The lad's heart was in the right place. He seemed keen to learn and didn't appear to have any hidden agenda. But he just wasn't the sort of bloke you'd want to go to the pub with or, God forbid, back you up if you got into a tricky situation. The DCI had made the same assessment straight away. 
In many ways, that single remark summed up the differences between MI5 and Special Branch during the period that I was an officer. I was lucky to work alongside some true non-conformists in Special Branch. This sounds counterintuitive, but I can honestly say that some of the people I worked with were genuine one-offs. I had absolutely no idea how on earth they'd ended up joining the Met in the first place. I won't name them, but I don't doubt that my ex-colleagues will know exactly who I'm talking about. We had a guy who had been in the Australian Army during the Vietnam War and had been a tunnel rat, crawling through miles of pitch-black Viet Cong tunnels armed with a Colt 45 handgun. He actually had a medical certificate to prove that he'd been clinically assessed as being sane and he would proudly show this to people. One of the older chaps I sat close to in the office for several years was convinced that his brain was being fried by the computers in the office and he also complained bitterly about others talking on the phones because his hearing aids would play up. He therefore surrounded himself with a wall of cardboard boxes covered in tinfoil, turning his workspace into something that looked like a miniature shanty town. We had an ex-scriptwriter from many of the earliest episodes of Doctor Who on the team. He still gets mobbed when he goes to Doctor Who conferences and events around the world. Another very eccentric Special Branch DC had auditioned to be the gong-striking muscle man at the start of the rank films and had ultimately been pipped at the post by Ken Richmond, the Olympic wrestler. We also had quite a few very posh characters who spoke with plums in their mouth and could easily have passed from minor royals or members of the aristocracy. One of them used to get called away to do undercover jobs for the art and antique squad, flying across the world and staying in very upmarket hotels, posing as a wealthy buyer for stolen masterpieces. Another of them was a rather lovely, classically trained pianist, who I would address formally as Lady Catherine. I could never figure out why on earth she had joined the police, but she was fantastic at her job and great fun to be around. She would tell amusing stories of dealing with violent, gobby detainees as a sergeant, who she would quickly have eating out of her hand as she treated them like naughty schoolboys, caught having a midnight feast after lights out. However, my absolute favourite character was someone called Andy. Andy had served in the Royal Marines and in the Special Boat Squadron in the Falklands War. Andy was a practical joker with a wicked sense of humour. And on one occasion in 1998, I was one of his many victims. He was based in Thames House, the MI5 HQ for a period of time. And I needed to go there for a meeting about something or other. At that time, he was very slowly building his own house from building materials that he collected by rifling through skips on people's drives. We joked with him that he was like the old woman who lived in his shoe. He met me in the foyer, and after getting through the inevitable security processes, we walked through the building chatting. I'd been there quite a few times, but I was grateful for his company, because the building's huge, and it's probably one of the most confusing places I've ever been in. Everywhere looks exactly the same. 
All of the corridors were painted the same drab light grey, and all of the offices that we walked past looked exactly the same, making it a rather disconcerting place to be. Eventually, we walked into an office where there was a single occupant, an attractive girl in her late twenties sitting at a desk typing away on a computer. I'd never seen her before. She looked up and smiled politely. There was then a rather long and awkward pause, with Andy standing there and saying nothing. And me stood there wondering why on earth we were in this particular office. The girl looked quizzically at us both. Andy then rather formally cleared his throat and said, Ian? This is Susanna. Susanna, this is Ian. I smiled and nodded at her and said, Hello, Susanna. And she returned the greeting. Andy carried on standing there, saying nothing. And I began to feel very uncomfortable and a little confused. After another ten seconds of silence that felt about ten minutes, he said to me then, Go on then. I said, Sorry, Andy, what do you mean, go on? And he said, I think you have something to say, Ian, don't you? I looked blankly at him and said, Sorry, Andy, I've no idea what you're talking about. He rolled his eyes and smiled apologetically at Susanna and said, Susanna, Ian has something that he would like to say to you, haven't you, Ian? By this time, I was starting to feel a rising sense of panic, combined with confusion. I could feel my face turning red at this ridiculous and baffling situation. I could barely even look at Suzanne, but eventually she started giggling, and I realised this was obviously a prank that Andy had cooked up. Andy spun on his heel, chuckling, and still feeling embarrassed and calling him all sorts of names, I followed him along many more nondescript corridors, up and down stairwells, and finally we ended up in an empty office. He suggested I take a seat and told me he'd go and collect the person that we were there to see. I sat waiting, and waiting, and waiting. After about 15 or 20 minutes, I realised with a horrible, sickening feeling that he'd abandoned me there. The horrible bastard had led me into the bowels of this awful, huge, grey, anonymous building where everywhere looked exactly the same. I had no mobile phone because mobiles had to be handed in at reception. I had no idea where I was and no idea how to find my way back. We had passed through numerous electronically locked doors that he had opened with his security swipe card. So it wasn't as simple as just wandering around until you find your way out. James Bond would have been flummoxed. I humiliatingly wandered into at least half a dozen offices, trying to explain to suspicious members of staff who I was and that I needed to get back to the foyer. No one knew who Andy was and they couldn't find him in the internal phone directories. I began to fear that I would spend weeks marooned in this ghastly building. Eventually, someone took pity on me and helped me find Andy's office. I walked in and found him sitting with his feet up on the desk, shoulders shaking with laughter. I wasn't amused. 
I noted that his was the only office in that dreary building that had any spark of individuality. Above the door in large Gothic lettering was written, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. I loved working with these quirky characters. They could run intellectual rings around many of our MI5 cousins. We treated police officers as if they were all a bit thick. The demise of Special Branch in the years leading up to its disbandment in 2006 was by all accounts a very sad, frustrating and difficult time for the many hundreds of intelligence officers who had served there for such a long time. There was a definite suspicion that scores were finally being settled by the CID, specifically some senior people in SO13 who didn't really understand or value what Special Branch did. They didn't appreciate the variety and seriousness of the national security threats that the department was responsible for investigating. Nor did they understand the political context of working alongside the wider security service community. CID officers dominated the newly created Counterterrorism Command, SO15, and many of their senior officers appeared to nurse long-standing irrational resentment towards ex-Special Branch officers. I don't really know why this was the case, but many people believed that it was because of three things. Firstly, the CID had always resented the fact that special branch officers were given the title detective, as in the eyes of most of the CID, they were the only ones who would be allowed to use that title. Secondly, over the years, many of them had tried to get into special branch but had been unable to pass the exam. Consequently, they nursed a grievance towards the department. Finally, CID officers hated the fact that much of the work of Special Branch was by definition secret, and they bitterly resented being kept out of the national security circle of trust. This is obviously very childish, but these interdepartmental rivalries exist all over the world in law enforcement. 